You're listening to Intentionally Catholic, a podcast about living our Catholic faith with joy and intention. Welcome to Intentionally Catholic. I'm Dan Hansen. I'm a convert from Protestantism from about 11 years, and I'm here with Father Ron Hutchinson, a cradle Catholic and rector of the Basilica of St. Adalbert. Hello, Father Ron. Hello, Dan. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. You too? I am well. Thank you. Well, good deal. This is our first episode, and today I think I want to just jump into our stories. And let's just start with you. You're a cradle Catholic, and you're a priest of how many years right now? I am a priest of 29, almost 30 years. Uh, my ordination date uh, anniversary is uh, September 24th. So my goodness. Yeah, this year uh, in September, uh, or I should say next year in September 2024, uh, it will be 30 years. My goodness. So quite a quite a journey. Let's talk about, you know, your life at home. Cradle Catholic, right? The family was Catholic. You know, what was that situation like? Uh, it's interesting. You When you say the family was Catholic, um, yes, my dad was Catholic in name only. My dad became Catholic to marry my mother. It was one of those typical things at that time where you, he met with uh, Monsignor Gallagher one time and then he became Catholic. He was confirmed and boom, it was done. And basically after that, my dad didn't practice Catholicism oh, um, because he gotcha. it wasn't a conversion. It was just a, a matter of like, okay, now you're this brand of Christian. Um, so, and I don't think his family was ever like a hugely Christian family. I mean, it was, they were Lutherans, but I don't think he was in any form or fashion. So really my entire faith upbringing was my mom and my mom's side of the family, my grandparents, um, because they were very Catholic, even though they were converts um, in their adulthood, be, while the children, my aunts, my aunt, my mom, and my uncle were little kids. Um, the girls, my aunt Carol and my mom, both became very Catholic and were very, very attached to their faith. But... Um, yeah, so my faith was an experience of my mom passing it on. It wasn't my father passing it on to me. How did and, your mom um, handle your father not not being involved so well? Uh, you know, she. I just think she just was like, well, that's the way it's going to be, you know, mm -hmm. okay. and there's not going to be any different. And I don't know early on in their marriage if there were any discussions about it, but it was just, that's the way it was by the time I couldn't remember, you know, it was sure. my mom taking us to church, you know, um, my mom managed, you know, at one point in time, there would have been three kids. Uh, there would, I was five, six years older than my youngest sister. So I would have been not even in kindergarten yet. And my youngest sister would have been a baby, which meant that my other sister would have been a year younger than I am. So my mom managed us all and and there were no mishaps, you know, nobody got spanked <laughs> as far as I can remember. And, you know, nobody went out of control and anything like that. So, but my mom managed it and I was very involved. I was an altar server from the time I was in second or third grade and uh, served all through, you know, even high school and uh, thought about priesthood. Um, even at one point, went to look at high school seminary because that was back when there were still high school seminaries. And I remember I was there for one weekend 
you know, on a retreat and in between somehow I got a hold of a phone and called my parents and said, this is not going to happen. They're all nerds. I'm out of here. <laughs> so, and now I always say to people, and now I'm one of the nerds, you know, so, yeah. um, it's funny. I just didn't know who I was. So, um, but then I thought about it at high school. I thought about it in college. I was very involved in the on campus ministry, um, at college and then graduate school. I still went to the Newman center, um, but never like made that leap. Um, and so finally when I had my first job and I had a hard time finding a job, my, um, I, it just never worked that the kind of position I wanted opened up at the universities I was work, you know, applying to, or they opened up, but I didn't get the job, that sure. kind of thing. And so finally I took a job in residence life in, um, Massachusetts and the Berkshire mountains of Massachusetts, not what I wanted to do. Um, hoping just to kind of get my foot in the door and be able to get somewhere, but I became a very unhappy soldier, um, so to speak. And, um, what were you doing? What was, was that job? I ran a freshman residence hall. Well, see, that's also, why you didn't like it. That, that doesn't well, sound I can, fun I at all. I can tell you that because what that is, is babysitting. Um, and I don't do that well. So, um, I mean, I babysit a baby very well, but I do not babysit 19-year-olds or 18-year-olds. No, well. that's tough. Um, so, I, I started going to mass every day or almost every day that I could. And um, weekends became involved in a local parish, no longer anything connected with the university and got to know, you know, other people. And I just was trying to figure out and I was asking God, you know, what do you want me to do with my life? And I certainly never thought that um, I was trying to make a decision. Should I just become a full time counselor and make the big leap, you know, that kind of thing and or go back to graduate school and get my Ph.D. And, you know, that kind of thing. I, that was in my mind. Mm -hmm. God had other plans. Holy Thursday of that year, I was sitting in the front row at church, not because the front row is even my row normally, but I was there. And um, the gospel was a, just a profound experience of, of God speaking to me, calling me, um, the gospel was not like it was being read anymore. It was like Jesus was speaking to me and it was very strange. Time stopped. Um, and when the words, as I've done so much, you do as is the Holy Thursday gospel after Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, I, I knew clearly I wasn't supposed to go wash feet for a living. <laughs> um, so I knew that I was meant to be a priest and, I, I was just on fire from that minute on. And in fact, so much so I went to the priest right away after the end of the mass and said, like, you and I need to talk, or maybe I waited till Easter Sunday. I, I just remember that I, he said like, can you give me a couple of days? I'm a little tired. Um, and so we met like later that week and I knew father Mike very well. So, uh -huh. and he just took me under his wing from that moment on and made it happen. And I didn't come back to Grand Rapids. I stayed in the Berkshire Mountains and joined the Springfield Diocese. Um, in fact, that parish became my home parish. And I went to school in Boston, went there for um, two years or a, a year. Yeah, two years. And um, then at the end of the two years, just realized that this wasn't my home and I needed to go back home. And so I asked Grand Rapids. Grand Rapids said yes, but I have to transfer seminaries. And so I ended up transferring to a 
a consortium of theology schools, which were Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish, um, and Episcopal, and all that. It was called the Toronto School of Theology, but I was connected specifically with um, Regis College, which was the Jesuit. Um, college and uh, we lived with the bazillions. It was a bazillion bizarre things because um, the bazillions are bizarre. Um, I've never heard of the bazillions. I yeah, love the, order the name of Saint, though. Order of Saint Basil. Yeah, wow. and they're just kind of, they're probably more common in Canada, uh, northern U.S. and southern u.s not really midwest at all so well, and they've they got just a great a very, name very odd order um and so we lived with them but so they were in charge of our formation but education was another place so it just never worked really well for me there and um i was very unhappy and i'm sure that that didn't help matters and i came back and did my internship which i loved but when it came time to go back to seminary we had a new bishop by then, and the new bishop said, we're not going back to Toronto. You're all going to Mundelein in Chicago. Well, the worst part was Chicago looked at me and said, uh, you've been now, this will be your third seminary. Something is not good. We're not happy about that. And I wasn't happy, so it just seemed really right that I should just leave, period. So I left the seminary and said, I don't think this is for me. I'm I'm going to be 30 years old here. I don't want to be talked to like a child. Yeah. Um, I'm not a kid. What was that moment like, you know, leaving something that you've set your path on and now you're 30 years old, you know, you're not done yet, I, I, but man. You know, I'm, I know, but I felt like a failure, Yeah. number one. Um, number two, I just had no idea what to do with my life. I was in such a wrecked state. Luckily, the day I was going to take a job to work for Dean Witter and sell commodities, which meant I would have been selling insurance and stocks and all that kind of stuff, would have had to go take classes to learn about finance, you know, sure. and all that kind of stuff. A priest called me and said, I want you to come work for me at my parish. I'm really in need of somebody, need somebody who's a go-getter, and I think you would make that happen. So I did. Did you know him? Yeah, he was the former pastor of my home parish. Okay. So I knew of him, and he had run into my grandmother. And, you know, it. I, I think it's all part of God's plan, you know, because then at the end of the year with him, when I was ready to say, okay, you got to start paying me more, dude, because, like, I was dumb and said yes to this a really bad salary, um, and I want to move to the shore uh, you know, the coast of Michigan and stay, be closer to work and blah, 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 and not be living in Grand Rapids and driving back and forth and all that kind of stuff. Um, he's like, no, I'm not, I'm not, uh, get, extending your contract. And I'm like, what? You know? <laughs> um, so I, he said, no, you're going back, you're going back to the seminary. He said, this, this diocese doesn't need another really good pastoral associate. We need another really good priest. So um, he said, I've arranged it all. The bishop has agreed. It's all taken care of. And so, um, yeah, I met with the bishop one time and he's like, where do you want to go to school? And I got to choose. And so I felt like I had some control over my life. And that I remember that the first meeting with when I went for my interview at the seminary, um, I met with the rector and I said, you know, I'm just going to lay my cards on the table here. You know, I'm almost, you know, I'm 29 going on 30. Um, I just am, 
I, I'm not in the mood for games anymore and I want to be treated like an adult. And, you know, I'm not some kid who needs to be watched and, you know, um, treated like they don't know anything. And mm -hmm. so I said, I need you guys to understand that right from the start. You know, I'm not trying to be like, you know, I don't need to be formed. I need to be formed. But quite honestly, you know, I'm not some kid coming into this. And he was like, we don't see you that way. Um, so that helped, I think, you know, because it's hard to transfer seminaries when you're that late in your career. Sure. You don't know anybody. Um, you're, you're, you're a stranger coming into a group of people that have been together for four years at three or four years. Um, and so it was hard. I mean, it was very hard and I'm, I'm an introverted person, so I don't, I don't make friends easily. I, I'm not one to let people in easily, quickly. So it was hard. It was a hard transition. It was a hard couple years of my life, but it went well and got ordained at the end of the time. It was June, got ordained to diaconate, which was unusual. I should have been already a deacon for a year mm -hmm. at the end of my last year, but I couldn't because I had to finish seminary first. Um, and then... Father Tom Simon, my first pastor, called the bishop and said, you know, a, de a deacon really doesn't help me a lot at a parish where I need somebody to help say masses. And um, so the bishop agreed. And within another few months, he he gave me dispensation to be ordained a priest in September, which is very odd. I'm the only September ordination in the entire diocese. Wow. How long is the process normally from deacon to priesthood if you if you normally go that route. it's a kind of like a school year you're a deacon for the whole last school year you're ordained like at the end of your third year and um your third theology year and you the whole fourth theology year you're a deacon at the seminary which i never got to do all my classmates were deacons and i was you know i was not but on the other hand i was the lead cantor at the seminary so oh, there you go yeah, like so that. I had another job. I had something else I had to do. So, so that's what did you say? Going to be thirty years ago? Yes, nineteen ninety four. All right. So you you start the priesthood. What's life like at that point? Do you feel like oh, okay, I'm it. This is what God wanted, and now life's just you know full what's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know. I have to admit, the best years of my life, and they weren't always easy, but best years of my life. Um, were probably the earliest years of priesthood, um, partly because I was an associate at first. So everybody loves associate pastors because, you know, they're not in charge. So we like ours. Yeah, it, it, they can't do anything wrong, you know, in, in essence. Um, but I became a pastor after only um, four years, which at that time was pretty quickly. Um, now it's nothing. We, we make pastors the first day after ordination. Um, and which is, I think crazy, but, um, I became a pastor and like right away was thrown into like, like the, the pit. It was just like crazy. I mean, I was, I was, you know, slaying dragons from minute one, you know, I wow. arrived at my first parish for my first assignment as a pastor to be informed by the township that I had to be out of portable buildings that we had at our school within 
three months or six months, some crazy number. And I'm like, uh, how am I supposed to do that? Cause like, I just got here. Right. And that involves like building and raising money. And so within literally, I got them to agree to wait two years, but literally I barely arrived and I'm saying, okay, we've got to raise money. And um, since we're going to do this, let's build a parish center because we don't have any place to you know, gather. We don't have any sure. meeting spaces. Uh, we'll totally renovate the that end of the school that it's going to hook to blah, blah, blah. And it'll be $3.5 million. And, you know, I'm like raising money and hiring contractors and working with the parishioners. And it was crazy. And yeah. I pretty much feel that that's defined my priesthood since then on like it's always a series of craziness like you know i i just can't seem to be the guy who gets the place that is perfect uh needs <laughs> nothing um tons of money is you know you don't even have to think to survive there you know sure um, you know my place is always like okay uh, let's fix this let's fix that you know let's raise money let's you know survive you know let's do different things so yeah and maybe that's partly my personality i can't just let things go i'm not the kind of guy to say well good enough is good enough you know um but so yeah there so there's been a lot of days of doubts there's i mean there are i would say in the last um Definitely the last five years of my life, more doubts. Um, I love being at the Basilica. I love being the rector of the Basilica. But the priesthood that I joined 30 years ago almost is not the priesthood of today. What um, do you mean? Well, I mean, you certainly, the priesthood when I entered, you didn't have three places uh, to take care of. Um, you weren't dealing with the financial problems today, no butts in the pews, you know, that kind of thing. Um, there's been a lot of drama in the church over the last, you know, even 10 years. Um, so the church that I became a priest for, I don't even recognize that in the church today. It's, and I know that the church doesn't stay the same in some ways, but it does stay the same in other ways, mm -hmm. um, doctrinally and dogma and all that kind of thing. But it's just, it's very different. And so the expectations on a pastor are very different. The stress, the just day to day, like, I mean, I, I feel like it going on 62, like I feel a lot older because it's just every day is very stressful, you know? Well, Okay, so what can we do as people in the pews, and not just for you at the Basilica, but you're you're basically a, a spokesperson for other priests out there, other diet, you know, other parishes. What can people do? Yeah, I think the hardest part of this is, you know, there, the way canon law is written, um, the buck stops at my desk. Period. You know, I'm responsible for everything at the parish. And you can have people advise you and help you, but it still is, it's my decision-making sure. at the end. I'm the shepherd, plain and simple. And um, so I think the flock just needs to realize, number one, you know, when I became a priest, it wasn't unusual still to have two associates at some places. I mean, we're lucky if you get one now. And if you get one, there's no guarantees you're still going to have one. You know, a year down the line, two years down the line, whatever. I mean, that's one of the things we're facing at the Basilica right now. Uh, Father David uh, is eventually going to be made a pastor. 
Um, he's only one year ordained thus far. Could happen this year. Could happen next year. I don't know. But when it happens, I know that there's going to be things to figure out because I have two parishes and there's no way we can maintain the schedules that we have. I mean, you just, and they're three blocks apart. So there's some real questions that are going to have to be asked. Like, you know, people in the 1800s had to do far more to go to church than we do today. And yet people still don't go to church. <laughs> I think that's where the people of God can do something. It's called evangelization. I am not in the marketplace. You are. Other parishioners are. When I say the marketplace, I mean places of work, out in the world. Um, my My world is very small compared to your world. My world kind of revolves around the, uh, you know, the parish. Sure. Um, I've got enough to keep me busy here. There isn't time to be out doing different things, you know, um, engaged with various people. I'm pretty much engaged with my parishioners and blah, blah, blah. Well, you're not. You and the other parishioners have a lot of contact with other people. And yet in that contact, talk very little about your faith. Hmm. That's very interesting because we're when we get to my part of the story, you know, where I came from, that's really what I ended with is talking about that, how somebody did that, took the time to do that with me, and it well, made a huge difference in my life. Speaking of which, then we should hear your story because Well, before we do me. that, right. No, I, I, there is a couple things that I am curious about. I You started okay. this by talking about how your dad became Catholic really just for the marriage. Let's get mm -hmm. that accomplished. And then that was the last he really thought about it. How did... Your mom, your dad, your family, brother, sisters, I forget what you said. I know you I had have a two couple. Sisters, two no sisters, no brother. Yeah. How did they all feel about this decision? Well, it, my family thought I was crazy. Mm -hmm. um, my, at least my parents. I don't know what my sisters actually thought. It's funny. We've never even had that conversation. Um, but my parents thought I had gone off the deep end. Um, you know, I'd finally got a job. They th I think they finally thought... You know, he's out of our hair for good now. Um, and he's not a student anymore. Um, he, you know, we don't have to think about this. And now suddenly I'm saying I'm going to go to the seminary and I'm throwing everything away that I've done and everything thus far. And But it's funny. I have never seen it as throwing away. I've always seen it as a progression, a journey. And so, you know, the counseling and college administration were just part of the things that I needed to bring into the life that I have now, that I that that I am engaged in, um, I think it's one of the reasons that from you know administration doesn't really bother me. Doing the the administrating of a parish doesn't bother me. Um, a lot of my life is spent triaging people in a from a psychological standpoint, spiritual standpoint. So um, I think all of that is meant to be. But yeah, my parents were freaked out. My dad and mom, I, both at a different times, you know, thought I was crazy. And, you know, so I think that's also why I didn't start studying for my home diocese. I started studying for another diocese. I just sure. needed to, I needed to show that this was what I was meant to do. When did they swing around? I would say by mid time in the seminary, they kind of came around. Um, my dad, however, um, still hadn't gone to church really and, and really wasn't even going at that point, even um, for Christmas or anything. He had, he had stopped even major holidays. Um, 
So I remember the last two years of seminary when I moved to Baltimore for my last two years, I started praying every day, every time I went into the chapel, that my dad would find faith, that that God would move his heart to sure. find faith. Um, and it was very interesting because it didn't actually happen until literally the last month I was at the seminary. Um, suddenly out of nowhere, my mom informed me that my dad and her went to mass and then went to dinner afterwards. And several weeks of hearing that, finally I called and said, mom, what's going on? And she's like, your dad just said, uh, Hey, I want to go to church with you, which she said, I just kind of like, okay. And he's been at church ever since. And my dad became like, kind of like the ultimate priest father, like, you know, he would drop by the parish office up there in Reed City, and he was just like he was engaged. Did know? he ever talk about the change? What brought it on from his point of view? No, and I never asked any questions about it. Um, one of the things I learned is that you cannot be a priest for your family. You you know, you're still whoever you are, right? Um, and so. I just thought, you know what? It happened. I'm just going to thank God for it, and I'm not going to question it. Two years of praying before you saw an answer. Yes. Let me tell you, miracles do happen. They just don't happen in the time frame we would like them to happen in. Um, Yeah, it took a lot of patience. In fact, I think my approach to it was to say, and I say this often to people, I think you have to give it to God and let it go totally. It doesn't mean you're not praying about it. I was praying about it all the time, but I I had to literally just give it to God and let it be in his time frame. And in the time frame that he worked with my father, you know. And so so many things in my life I've come to realize that really is how it's better to solve the things that are bothering me, not trying to, you know, control them, fix them, you know, maybe doing things that are part of that but not believing that it's all up to me to make happen or it's got to happen in my time frame. Well, yeah. I mean, we believe what we believe. We believe God is who he says he is. And that means when we put something in his hands, that's the best place we can put it. And when we really can grasp that and live into it, things change. The majority of us, when we say we give it to God, really all we do is keep our hand on Mm -hmm. it and put it in his lap, which is not giving it to him. Right. No, I, yeah, in fact, I've got notes that that's one of the things I want to talk about is just what surrender looks like in an upcoming Mm -hmm. episode. So, yeah, well, that's great with your dad. That's, you know, a a story that really should inspire all of us with whatever we're praying for to be diligent, you know, like the, like the parable Jesus told with, what is it? The the lady Mm -hmm. who goes to the king or whatever, and he just gets so sick of it every day. She's going to kill me with Mm -hmm. this. I'm going to just answer her prayer or her request. So she'll leave me alone. And of course, that's not how God is, but he does want the diligence. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I think it is, it's all about patience. I mean, and that, that would be where, you know, uh, I'm going to do a little segue to your story because I think your story has involved a lot of patience because things have not gone the way you expected them always to go. Right. Um, and it's not always gone easily. No, it um, hasn't. 
And so, and so, really, in many respects, you've had to be very patient, very trusting. Oh, I have oh, not God. been. I have not been terribly patient all the time. But yeah, it's not not my. <laughs> I'm sure you have. That haven't. is not my superpower. <laughs> I want what I want, and I think now's the best time. <laughs> but yeah, with my story, we'll just shift into that. I'm a convert from Protestantism. You know a fair amount of this but you probably don't know mm-hmm. all of it. No, it's funny. I, I got bits and pieces. Yeah. I entered the church probably about 11 years or so ago. I should have looked that up. I've got notes somewhere, but that's that's close enough. I was raised Protestant, so I was Baptist. We were Reformed for a while, Wesleyan, you know, a number of different things. And You dabbled. Yeah, we dabbled. And the, the churches we were part of were sometimes very small, and then they would implode, you know, or something would happen. We didn't cause it, of course. well that's nice (laughs) but anyway we were you know the bible was the thing of course and so i was raised to know it back and forth and memorize as much as we could and i loved that part of my life you know that was a really sound foundation and i went to college initially to teach and then i realized partway through i think i'm called to be a pastor so i went to seminary for a year and you you talked about the nerds you said when you went to seminary, that little high school, you met the nerds, mm-hmm. had the same reaction. I got there and I met the nerds and I thought, hmm, they did, we, I just didn't mesh with them. My sense of humor did not mesh with theirs and it was a very strange experience, <laughs> but I did like it. It was a lot of fun. But at the end of that year, I was getting ready to, I left all my stuff in my dorm, you know, my TV and things like that. And I headed home and over the course of that summer, I thought, you know what? I never, ever prayed, did God even want me in the seminary? This was all me just feeling like, yeah, that's a thing I'd like to do. I was, you know, steering my ship at that point. And I thought that's a lot of money to keep chucking at this thing. If I haven't even checked with God to find out if that's his plan. So I spent that summer praying, you know, right before I was supposed to go back and I decided, no, I'm not supposed to go back. I don't understand that. It was very scary because, you know, this was my plan. So I ended up getting you know, a couple different jobs, but then I landed at the job I'm at now. So 26 years of that and get married. My job's good. It's helping me, you know, support the family. We had kids right away. I had six kids. We lost one. My youngest daughter had a twin, lost her. So five kids and everything was really pretty good. And then probably about 13 years or so ago, um, the job that I have, one of the things that we did is a fair amount of radio advertising. And my rep, you know, the guy who would sell me this advertising, would take me out to lunch and we'd make battle plans, you know, from time to time. And I got to know him quite well. And he was a Catholic. And I always felt bad for him because he was Catholic. (laughs) But I thought he seemed like a nice enough guy. You know, we had a great time. And I remember, you know, we we had a lot of talks about religion. So it wasn't like that was a, a sticking point at all. It was never an argument or anything. I was very interested. My dad had been raised Catholic and similar to the story you had, he was never really super engaged in it. So he, he shifted out of that pretty easily, but I was always interested in the whole concept of it. My grandpa was still Catholic at that point. So as I'm at lunch with him, we're having different talks. I decided like 13 years or so ago, I remember sitting one particular lunch. I decided I'm going to save him today. I've got the time and I might as well just (laughs) walk him through. Let's do this today. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, I figured I'll ask him some questions. So I had questions for him. And I remember one of the one of the questions that I thought was just so brilliant at the time. This is only 13 years or so ago. You know, I brought up the fact that our crosses in the Protestant churches 
in, you know, I think across the board, but I can't say that for sure. Most of the time, there's no body on the, on the, no corpus. No on corpus, the, totally empty. Right. Yep. Because we believe Jesus rose. We don't believe, you know, we don't believe he's still dead. And that's clearly what Catholics believe because look, there it is right there. We can see it. So I said to him, you know, what about that? And then he comes back with passages that I've read over and over that I'd memorized and never really processed. He comes back with Paul's, I I should have written it down, but Paul was talking about, we preach Christ crucified. I thought, Mm -hmm. oh, that's a really good answer to that. How can I fault the Catholic Church's crucifix when Paul was literally saying the same thing? It didn't convert me, but it certainly made me think. And then he went on with a whole bunch of questions, and it doesn't even matter what they were. The one that really got me was he asked me, what is the pillar and foundation of the truth, you know, in my opinion? And I said, well, the Bible because that's how I was raised. And that's what I firmly believed. And he said, nope, it's the church. And I said, it's the Bible. And he said, well, the Bible says it's the church. And then he told me, First Timothy, I think it's 3.15. And I didn't believe him that that was in there. So I just, okay. And I went home and I looked it up and he was right. And then I thought, my goodness, what is going on? And really what that did was that began quite a process. I guess first I realized I didn't know everything which was humbling, but it, it was mm-hmm. exciting because I've always liked the idea of Bigfoot being real and the Loch Ness Monster because I'd like to think we haven't figured it all out yet. So from that angle, I liked the idea. I loved digging into theology and all of that. Oh, boy, there's a lot of new stuff to dig into. And the thing that made that all safe for me was because in our conversations, my friend had talked about or brought up or I had run into, I don't even remember anymore, but the idea that the church is infallibly protected in its doctrine and its faith. It's not going to teach us wrong things or tell us wrong things mm-hmm. in those instances. People can still make mistakes, but the church... Faith and morals. Right. Yeah. They're going no, to be right. And, and, infallibility and faith I, and I knew they were wrong about Mary. And that was my get out of Catholicism card. I knew I could play that at any point in this journey and I'd be free. So I thought, let's dig into it. And my friend brought me a box, huge box of books, all these things that he had collected over the years and handed them to me. I think I I had to buy him new copies of a couple of them because I read them to shreds and basically read my way into the church. I went back to the earliest documents. I was an English major. I did a lot of writing and a lot of research. I didn't want, you know, modern people's takes on something. I wanted to go all the way back. We're going to go back to whatever I can find. So I get to the church fathers and I'm finding things like St. Ignatius, year 110. He's writing, you know, he's on his way to be martyred and he's writing off letters to different churches. And I remember he's writing, I think it was the Smyrnians or something, or maybe this one was to the Mm -hmm. Romans. But he writes about these people who are not following the faith of the apostles. And he's saying they won't even, they abstain from the Eucharist because they don't believe it's the body of our Lord. And they don't believe it's the blood of our Lord, which was crucified. I mean, oh my goodness, that's that's Catholic thought. That's the year 110, and it's really considered pretty much, I think, historical fact that St. Ignatius had at least heard the Apostle John speak. Yeah, you're talking about individuals at that point who encountered the apostles, you know, so they were brought to faith by the apostles. Right, so and I'm sitting here thinking that, about that and thinking either— the church, you know, you know, because now we're talking at that point about, you know, Jesus being truly present in the Eucharist. Physically, he's there. Either St. Ignatius, I mean, the, the very first couple of generations since John is already that wrong. 
You know, he's already completely messed it up. Jesus meant it as a symbol and he's misunderstood Mm -hmm. it somehow like that. That's what I had to think if I was going to be right. Or I had to think maybe I'm wrong and maybe he's got it right. Maybe that's literally what John taught. And that's because that's what John was taught. It freaks me out to think that you at no point said to yourself, Protestantism as a reality didn't begin until the 16th century from the death of Christ. There was a lot of people wrong. It took that long. And yet, and that all these people have been wrong for all these centuries. That's the part I'm always as a Catholic, just flabbergasted by. Because it's like, how do how do you not recognize like literally your Christian tree was growing really strong up to this point? And then suddenly a branch said, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. But yet I still want to be connected. I know. I know. It's very strange. I don't know. I can't speak, of course, for all Protestants or anybody but me. I never thought about it. You just say that's the way, you know, and again, I can't remember because I was not the best student in my um, seminary church history class because that was a boring class with a capital B and then a capital Mm -hmm. C boring class. And so I kind of faded in and out. But what I remember of that class is the book started, the book that we had started with Martin Luther. That's what we, we had the apostles. We read about them. And because we knew that from the New Testament. And then we jump to. And then we ignore everything in between. And that's not fair for me to say that that's for sure what happened. But that is what I remember. But it's pretty close to reality. And yeah, we just figured uh, that the, the church split very early and f- developed some weird ideas, you know, around Constantine 300, something like that. And it became really hierarchical, you know, and all of that stuff happened. And the power of priests, blah, 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 took place. And then Martin Luther fixed it. And we were so glad that Martin Luther fixed it. And <laughs> thank God for Martin Luther. <laughs> I, you know, all of that. That's literally what I had run. So I ran into these church fathers, and that was staggering to me. St. Justin Martyr, another one writing in the 150s, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe, you know, I'm really shooting from the hip here, but I believe he's writing an apology, and, which is basically an explanation of the faith. Um, a lot of the, the Christian worship, up until him was kind of hidden because people were being persecuted so dramatically. Mm -hmm. And I think his account is one of the first accounts that kind of sneaks out saying what Christian worship looked like at the time. And when you read through what he's saying, anybody who's attended a Catholic mass or a few of them is going to instantly feel at home with, they're going to say, Oh my gosh, things haven't changed hardly at all. Hardly at all. All it is so staggering. So I had already been as I'm reading. I did attend some masses. We went to Holy Redeemer, which is where you were. Which at is the where time. I ran into you. Yes. Yeah, and I could see the mass in these old writings. I could see Catholic thought in these old writings, and it really started to get in my head. My family was utterly freaked out, but we all knew I had the Mary get out of Catholicism card in my back pocket. None of this would go anywhere. But I fell in love with. The whole idea of Jesus present physically in the Eucharist, that was staggering to me to think that literally he's right there. And it's not like he's not in a Protestant church, but Mm -hmm. we believe that he's spiritually there. And that's great, too. There's incredible value to that. But physically present was just I just sat there thinking, you know, I would kneel there and think about Jesus is right here. What if that's true? 
And I wanted to be a part of that really bad. I was really frustrated that the Mary stuff was so wrong. That and was I remember that, out. Was, that was the issue that you kept trying to get me to basically admit that we were wrong. Um, and I kept saying to you, well, you know, you're just looking at her wrong yeah, from a wrong standpoint, you know? And that's what it took. You know, I fell in love with confession, believe it or not. The whole idea of confession just was, man, that, that was really compelling to me. You know, to hear somebody say, you're forgiven. And I understood at that point. I'd read enough. The priests weren't forgiving me from their own storehouse of, you know, magic. Yeah, exactly. This is God. They're just conveying that. But I'm hearing it. Mm -hmm. And I'm hearing those words. And I'm saying out loud what I did. You know, that was also quite yeah. eye opening. And I loved that concept, believe it or not. That was something that I liked. But the Mary thing. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm meeting with you and I'm trying to figure it out. And Basically, in reading and talking to people, you know, the switch went off and I started to realize, OK, we always all the Catholics that I've ever talked to, nobody, none of them ever thought or conveyed the idea to me that Mary was equal or better than Jesus or God. It was always Jesus is infinitely above Mary. So as high as you raise Mary, we understand Jesus is that little much, much higher yet. And then I start thinking about, <clears throat> excuse me, all the different things, you know, how God chose her from before creation. Again, we'll talk about that. Yeah, another, I think we will have episode. to get to that, especially because today, as we're uh, taping, you know, we're uh, it's the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. So, yeah, we got a lot of stuff to cover at some point. Basically, long story short, I kind of swung over and I realized, you know what, that was my last obstacle. And I don't completely get it. I've got questions, but... I don't believe the church is wrong. And that's when my family got really freaked out. My extended family, my wife, uh, I had five kids that were quite little. They weren't really so freaked out. They were just along for the ride. You know, yeah. sometimes we go to church over here. Sometimes we go over there. But when it became real, I thought, oh, no. So I waited for a while. And then I enrolled in an RCIA. And that was brutal for me because I'd been through seminary. And the RCIA started with, how do we know God exists? And I was, okay, when are we going to get to the point where I'm ready, you know, where, where I'm engaged in this? Because this is just, mm -hmm. I've lived this for all these years. And so after a while, my wife wasn't thrilled with the idea. My parents hated the idea. So I bailed on that class. And then I just felt like God is not letting me off the hook, you know, because now I believe the Catholic faith is right. I can't just sit here anymore. I've got to act on that. And so I start RCIA a second time. My wife went with me to that one because I thought, oh, the answer to prayer, we're moving ahead. And we bailed on that because she just couldn't wrap her brain around it. She loved the church that she was in. It was brutal. Yeah. My mom was furious and worried about me, not mad, you know, you know, she was mad, but it was concerned. <laughs> yeah, she was mad. <laughs> and concerned that I think I'm earning my way to heaven oh. and, you know, all those Catholic thoughts uh, because good works plan. You know, I could go into all of that stuff. A lot of it is just understanding that there were so many things that I, I read in the Bible that I never clued into. And I would try to talk to mom about them. You know, when Jesus talks to the young ruler and the guy says, what do I do to be saved? And Jesus says, do all the things in the law. Well, I've done all of that. Well, now give all this stuff to the poor. And, and then he's I, upset. I don't believe. Yeah. 
Right. So there is an element of we need to cooperate mm-hmm. with God's grace. I could see that, but trying to make people understand that yeah. crazy grace tough. builds upon nature. You know, um, we have to be moving in the right direction for grace to to work with us. You know, yeah. um, it's funny because the very same questions your mother has about your Catholic faith, the flip side of them are the questions I have with regard to Protestantism that I can't, I just can't get it. I don't get like, you know, this whole idea of being saved. Like all I have to do is say I'm saved and I'm saved. And it's like, well, what happens when you're not acting like you're saved? Um, you know, am I still saved or are you not saved? Or, right. You know, so I just get all like, okay, at least I feel like our faith, my faith, Catholic faith has an understanding of, of how sin conv- fits into it and how we deal with sin and, you know, how we repent and how we move forward and blah, blah, you know, all that kind of stuff. So the Protestantism, you know, the Protestant faiths, it's hard to pin down because there's a lot and and they vary. There are answers, you know, from my point of view now, they're not complete answers. Yeah. But they're better than the answers you're probably thinking because yeah, probably for you it's as weird and strange as Catholicism was to me well, in the beginning. Yeah. And and I get it. You know, that's why, you know, I always say, you know, I, I'm not the person to judge someone else's faith beliefs, but I can at least figure out how mine came into existence and how they have continued to stay firm for over 2000 years, you know, Well, and those were some of the things that were just that sealed the deal for me is just realizing that it goes back all that way. I can trace it. I can trace the leadership of the church all that way. What man-made organization, country, anything can we think of that existed in 33 AD that still exists in that same form today? There's nothing. Nothing has lasted that long. That was man-made. Nothing. So despite humanity even having anything to do with it, it still survives. So that's, you know, I, I, Gamaliel said, you know, if it's of God, there's nothing we're going to be able to do. So, you know, leave it alone. (laughs) Leave them alone, those early Christians. And it's true because, I mean, given all the attempts by humanity to destroy the faith and even some of the people within the faith doing things that seem like they were trying to destroy it. It's still here. It's still here. It's still here. It doesn't mean that things are perfect. I mean, we're an organization and that means we're not perfect because this isn't heaven. And we say to people, the church is not heaven on earth. The church is a glimpse of heaven, which means it's going to have all sorts of human issues that make the glimpse not very pretty at times. And right. And that was tough to work through, you know, the the whole abuse scandals and stuff like that. Those were brought up to me as I'm really, you know, entering the church. Uh, like I said, I went through two RCIA classes. We bailed on both of those. The third one, I ended up talking to Father Rob Mulderink's mom. I got connected with okay. her and it got I don't know what all the, the behind the scenes stuff to get things okayed, but it was okayed that she could walk me through four or five meetings and that got me ready. And I entered the church at St. Isidore in Grand Rapids all that time ago. The kids followed and trickled through, you know, as the years came by, my wife entered and that's another story for another day, how that 
all shook out. But the kids, I've got five of them. Four of them are altar servers. Yes, they are. And they serve together. And that's really fun to watch. I really enjoy seeing that. And the fifth one is always with me during mass. So Yeah, I've always wondered why she she just not isn't the outgoing type, huh? She is an introvert and just does not want to be seen, so to speak. Yeah, that's just not her thing. Yeah. And I'm kind of glad to have somebody there. She's the quietest. We of sit all of together. I will say that. But yeah, it is it's interesting to me. I at least from what I can what I have experienced and what I can see. All of the kids seem to have taken Catholic faith to heart, to heart. From everything I can see, they have. It's just so, it, uh, they love the reverence of it. It's they ingrained talk about that all in the time. them almost, considering the fact that they weren't always raised that way. That part is very scary to me. You know, I want, I, I led them here at a very formative age and I haven't been able to give them you know, years and years of a sound, firm foundation. I'm learning mm-hmm. as I'm trying to teach them and bring them up in this. And I just, all I keep coming back to is I I didn't hear, like you talked about, a, a profound, I don't know that you even said voice. I did have a profound experience with God that this is what I need to do. And the, the whole story of Abram, going and leaving came to mind. And I don't even remotely compare myself to that, but it was that I was leaving the comfort of my everything Mm -hmm. and I had to go somewhere else and nobody was going with me, but I knew I had to go. I, there was no doubt about it. And I figured the rest will shake out in the end, I guess. And that's where I'm at now. I'm trying to put that in God's hands. He brought me here. I think he brought me here for a reason. And I'm assuming that as time shakes out, this isn't going to be something I look back on and say, boy, should have done better for the kids. I think I've done the best I can. No, I th- I would say to you that my thought about it is that they each have a very personal faith that um, I see at different times, you know, um, how they talk about things, how they, you know, what matters to them, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's just been interesting to to watch it because, yeah, I, I remember you and your family way back at Holy, Holy Redeemer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then to come here to the Basilica and boom, you guys are here. And I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't seen you for a while. <laughs> right? No. So, but you know what? I think that even for me, I remember thinking to myself, it's not the right time. When I met you, it just wasn't the right time. There was too much fear there was too many unanswered things yeah. uh, and excuses, so to speak. And so, yeah, I, I was just, so to speak, a piece of the puzzle, but not the last piece of the puzzle. Now, everybody along the way, it was a great help just being able to talk, to read, uh, lots of that. And in the end, you know, it's the best thing. I look at that as the best thing I've ever done. The, the thing that's made, brought the most joy. I don't know that I would say it's made me the happiest. Because that happiness oh, and sure joy hasn't always, yeah, happiness and joy are two different but things. But joy, oh my goodness, Jesus is here. And really, I keep thinking, how can I go anywhere else? No matter what happens, I still believe he's really here. And that's where I want to be. So that's my story. We got your story. Two completely different paths. But, but a lot of connections. A lot of, a lot of interesting stuff. Um, in regards to vocations, as we wrap this up. What do you say? You know, we we need still need priests. I think it's so important to pray. We need priests. I I mean, it's at the heart of our faith. The Catholic Church is Eucharistic, plain and simple. You keep you've kept talking about it. Um, 
it's one of the reasons we need priests. We don't need priests for, you know, running parishes. We need priests for mass and we need to have them there to, so that we have Eucharist. So yes, but you know what? I've come to believe God is in charge of the church. It's his, he will provide what is needed at the time that it's needed. We all talk about, oh, we need more priests. And we do. I'm not going to say we don't. But I think we're going through a time in the church that is going to be different than the past. And maybe there's almost going to be some downsizing, so to speak. Um, and, and when I say downsizing, I'm talking about the fact that I think that it will come down to that there won't be as many parishes as there always have been. And people are going to have to work a little harder to go to church and all of that. But I think it's we're going to have to create a faithful remnant from which God will work and build again. And But we need to be a faithful remnant, plain and simple. And I question whether many people are right now really part of the faithful remnant or they're just here. You know, so because I, there's some real questions in my mind, and we can talk about well, that at another time about how I feel about the church today and, you know, what the world we're living in. And we don't live in Christendom anymore. Um, the, everything is not guided and, and justified and made real by faith. It's in the sense that it, our laws, sure. how we operate as a society. It, we And we can no longer continue to think we live in that Christendom time. We live in apostolic times. And apostolic times require a whole different kind of disciple. And I don't think many Catholics are prepared to be those kind of disciples. Right and that was one of the things that we wanted to try to do as we forge ahead with this podcast. You know, intentionally Catholic, doing things with intention, living our faith with intention understanding, you know, what's going on at mass all the way down to understanding the world we live in, asking big questions. We hope to get to all of that stuff. Praying for vocations. I think that's big. Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, Pope Benedict, had written mm -hmm. about a smaller church. He, he, a smaller church. In fact, he he referred to, you know, the faithful remnant. Um, and so I really honestly am a fan of that thought because, um I'm seeing it happening. I'm seeing it happening. And uh, I don't believe that every parish is right now that faithful remnant necessarily. You know, I, I, I think it's a little scary at times. I'm not going to say it isn't. Um, certainly, like I said, said before, this is not the church that I started in 29 years ago, almost 30 years ago. Um, I don't know where it's headed. You know, I, I know that I'm soon becoming an old geezer here. Um, so it will it's gonna be what it's gonna be. I'm just trying to to do my part while I'm here. And that's all we all can do. Way earlier you talked about knowing our faith and taking our faith, evangelizing. And I guess that's the last thing I wanna leave this with is just encouraging people to dig into their faith. Never stop learning. That's one of my favorite things about Catholicism is that it's so ridiculously deep. I mean, there's no way you're going to read it and finally figure out, there, I got it. I understand it. There's, I got it all now. Always, I, don't, I can stop reading. Always yeah. more. So you're never going to get bored. And just, you know, it's not just for your own edification or entertainment either. My friend, you know, that I tried to save had answers and he, we didn't argue. There was none of that. It, it never got heated like that. But the fact that he had answers and was willing to ask questions to me and then provide me with books I mean, it changed where I ended up. It's all entirely, well, God interacted, of course, but humanly, 
he was the springboard that got me the, moving. He was the catalyst. Yeah, the catalyst. Yeah, he was the catalyst. And my kids are here for that reason. And I'm so grateful that he was willing. You know, I love pretty much anywhere that my coworkers, when the topic comes up, they're always very gentle with me because they know I will go on and on and on and on and on <laughs> and on because I'm so excited. And on. So excited about it. <laughs> and I'm not great at it. I would love to get better at it. And I just encourage everybody out there. You know, if you don't know the answers, you can always, never fake an answer. Of course, never fake an answer. My friend never did that. He would dig into it. He would email priests if he didn't know. You don't have to know everything. You can find those answers. But just be that sounding board. Be willing to take your faith out. Just don't go to Wikipedia. <laughs> and on that Watch note. your sources. Watch your sources. All right. We'd love to know what you think. Let us know your thoughts in the comments. For Intentionally Catholic, I'm Dan Hansen. I'm Father Ron Hutchinson. God bless you.